This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.23, Harsh Realities, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom. I'm a lifelong Gundam fan, and I have to address this controversy right up front. Yes, we know that in the dub it's pronounced Shirako. Yes, we know that it comes from a real word which is pronounced Sirako. But in the Japanese, it's Shiroko, and it's a made-up space Jupiter name, and it's spelled S-C-I-R-O-C-C-O. So we're going to keep calling him Sirocco. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and I'm going to avoid the name controversy by going back to calling him Jupiter Headband. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 258 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patron, Eric R. We also need to thank the listeners who bought us a few things from our wish list. A mystery listener who sent us a book, and Pingtron who sent us tea. Tom is already reading the book, which is about the young officer's revolt in Japan in the 1930s. It has already been useful. And we are fast approaching the time of year when we will be drinking tea basically constantly. (laughs) If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown, You can become a patron and get access to our Discord, bonus content, and more by visiting GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. Or you can buy us an item from our wish list. The link is at the bottom of GundamPodcast.com. We're done taking questions for our question and answer episode. We got a lot of great questions, and we are excited to answer as many of them as we can. We'll be taking your Gundam opinions for our forum episode for a couple more days, but get those in as soon as possible because we already have a lot and there's no guarantee that we'll be able to get to all of them. And now back to episode 2.23. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 22, The Eyes of Sirocco, and researching Sirocco's implement and corporal punishment in Zeta and the history of vending machines. But first, let's tune in to TNN for a reminder of what happened last week. Marisai in the sky I can go twice as high Take a gander at our propaganda Little loyalist reading hour I can go anywhere I'm from Earth, that's my worth Little loyalist reading hour You can do anything Child of Earth, remember your birth Little loyalist reading hour The Cookie Operation by Paptimus Sirocco Gabby Gabflay lived in space. Even though she was from space, Gabby Gabflay really loved the people of Earth. 
They worked so hard to defeat the evil forces of Ugg that they got very tired and very hungry. That made Dabby Gabplay sad. So every day, she thought about nice things that she could do for the Earthnoids. One day, she decided to bring them cookies. She went to her best friend, Sally Masala, and asked for help. If we're going to bring cookies to the Earthnoids, we need a cookie-baking base on the moon, said Sally Masala. That's a good idea, said Gabby Gabplay, who was very impressed. So they decided to go to the moon to build a cookie-baking base. I hope we don't run into Ugg, said Sally Masala. They want Earthnoids to eat broccoli and take naps. If they see us bringing cookies to Earth, they will try to stop us. I hope we do run into Ugg, said Gabby Gabflay. Then we can stop them for good. That would make Mr. Basque really happy. And all the Earthnoids will get cookies forever. Gabby Gabflay and Sally Masala traveled all day. Soon they could see the moon. That's nice, said Gabby Gabflay, but not as nice as Earth. That's because Earth is the nicest of all, said Sally Masala, who had seen almost all the planets and moons. Even Jupiter. Just then, the forces of Ugg arrived. Stop right there, said Gundam Mark, the evil leader of Ugg. Yeah, stop right there, said his henchman, Rick number one. Give us all the cookies, said Rick number two. My head is tiny, said Rick number three. Never, said Gabby Gabflay. They started to fight. It was hard because Gabby Gabflay and Sally Masala were outnumbered. Just then, their friend Zack arrived. Hi, Zack, they both said. Mr. Basque sent me to help you beat Ugg because they stole all his hair, said Zack. Together they beat the forces of Ugg and built a cookie-baking base on the near side of the moon. That way, they could rain cookies down on the people of Earth whenever they wanted. The End And now the recap for the Eyes of Sirocco. The episode begins right where the last one ended. Jared and Moar have returned to their ship, and Jared braces for trouble. After losing one of the new Gabslay, he expects some kind of punishment. Instead, Sirocco credits him with getting them valuable information about the enemy, and tells him he was lucky to survive. Caught off balance by the unexpected encouragement, Jared seems to be warming to Sirocco, but Moar remains suspicious of Sirocco's motives. Jared is put in charge of two very young pilots, Sarah and Siddeli, both new type candidates straight from training. He prepares to take them out and observe their skills, deeply concerned about their lack of experience and their reluctance to kill the enemy. In the Argama's break room, Fa and Camille argue. Fa is clearly upset, with Camille blowing hot and cold. And Camille is upset that Fa has become a pilot. He hoped she could somehow stay sheltered from the war but she thinks he's being naive. Bright and Emma arrive, and although Emma thinks the argument is just a product of their boredom, Bright is concerned how it may affect them in combat. He tells them to patch things up, but Fa's parting shot is to call Camille's concern for her unmanly. And when Camille grabs her shoulder to stop her and talk to her, he can't actually put words to what he's feeling. Left alone in the break room, Bright and Emma wonder what should be done. Bright wants Emma to talk to Camille, but she thinks Camille's attraction to her will make any attempts to mother him or give him advice a bad idea. 
She also points out that as captain of the ship, isn't caring for and raising the crew Bright's responsibility? Out in space, Jared and his two young charges come across two mobile suits they've never seen before. These are the Methus and the G-Defensor, piloted by Rekoa and her wingman, and on their way to the Argama. When Jared realizes these are Ayug pilots, he knows there must be a ship nearby. Although Sarah thinks they should retreat, Jared orders her into combat, hoping to draw the Argama and Camille onto the battlefield. Even from the Argama, Camille can sense the presence of the two young new types, and is already getting his normal suit on when the alarm sounds. Fa tries to apologize to him for earlier, but he barely reacts, responding with a terse, Roger, before launching in the new Zeta Gundam. Emma takes out the Mark II, and Fa, who isn't supposed to launch at all, takes an unattended Rick Diaz. A moment of hesitation from Siddeley is all that saves Rekoa, but the arrival of the Argama's mobile suits leaves Jared, Sarah, and Siddeley very outnumbered. Moar decides to go back them up, but Sirocco stops her. Jared must be feeling very confident to engage the enemy without orders. Let's leave him to it, Sirocco smirks, and Moar waits fretfully, staring out the windows of the bridge. Siddeley and Sarah struggle to coordinate their movements, and Fa takes heavy damage as the fight wears on. Camille lands a direct hit on Siddeley's Marasai, completely obliterating them and Sarah can feel the minds of her enemies coming together and targeting her. She flees in terror, and Jared follows shortly after. Once again, Jared braces for punishment that never comes. He blames himself for engaging in the battle and for Siddeley's death, never once questioning why Sirocco didn't send backup. But Sirocco is understanding itself with Jared. Sarah's retreat, in the face of the enemy and without orders, earns her thinly veiled threats of violence. She will learn to control herself and her feelings in battle. Or else. Fa is faced with a similar reprimand. Emma slaps her for her impulsive action in taking the Rick Diaz before she has even finished her training. Fa tries to argue that humans are naturally driven by emotion, but this explanation or excuse earned her another slap. Rekwa and Camille politely turn away from the scene to avoid further embarrassing Fa and catch up with each other after their long separation. When Fa's dressing down is over, Camille goes to comfort her, and Rekoa goes to apologize to the mechanics for the damage to the Methus, the whole crew preparing for whatever it is the massing Titan's forces have planned. Let's talk about Gundam and the eyes of Sirocco. So I just figured out why they call the episode that. What's your theory? Not his physical eyes, his metaphorical eyes. Mm. And when Jared gets into this fight, first with just Rekoa and her wingman, and then with the reinforcements who show up, Sirocco's not like standing at the window watching. He's not standing at any instruments. And he can see everything. Yep. In fact, he can see better than the instruments can. Moar is watching the instruments. All she can tell is that somebody blew up, but Soroka knows who it was. And he then predicts what's going to happen next. He very clearly can see things. New type psychic noise. So many new type things in this episode. There's a lot of new type stuff. We have Bright speculating as to whether or not Fa is a new type. And whether or not that's why she was sent here. 
And over on the other side, Sarah and Siddeley, the two young pilots who have been assigned to Jared's little squad, are both new type candidates who have been specially selected by Sirocco. At one point, I thought the eyes of Sirocco might be a reference to Jared's new wingmen as mm. Sirocco's like spies. But then Siddeley gets killed. And Sirocco really doesn't need spies because A, he's toying with Jared and B, he's got his psychic remote viewing going on. It's very illuminating about Sirocco that the episode begins and ends with Jared bracing to be in trouble. <laughs> you say that's illuminating about Sirocco, but really that's illuminating about Jared and his whole life at this point. Well, it's, it's illuminating about both of them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the first one, they've lost one of the Gabflay. And in the second one, Siddeley's been killed. And Jared probably should have run the moment that reinforcements showed up. Probably, yeah. He probably should have told them, okay, we're retreating, bye. And Sirocco makes it sound like Jared didn't have permission to engage at all. So right. maybe he just... should have retreated as soon as they encountered the Methos and the G-Defensor. Now, Moar sees Sirocco's reactions to these failures as basically a manipulation, a way to get Jared on his side. Oh no, I'm not going to berate you or punish you like everybody before me has done, every commander you've ever had. I'm going to look on the bright side and, oh, you're so lucky you pulled through it at all. And I think that's what he's doing to Sarah too at the end there. Oh, I don't know. Because they contrast very clearly Sarah's scene with Sirocco and Fa's scene with Emma and Bright. Mm -hmm. And Fa gets slapped twice hard. Uh, though I don't think she's crying from pain. I think she cries because she's ashamed and embarrassed and upset. And frustrated yeah. and just full of emotions and just got out of her first real combat. Right. And that's why she's crying. And she's being berated like in front of everyone in the hangar. Um, but somehow Sirocco is so much scarier than the threat of being slapped as he just sort of brandishes this uh, long metal stick. It looks sort of like a riding crop. I think it is. It's metal, though. It's solid. There's no like bend in it. But it has kind of a curve to it. Mm, I didn't think so, but uh, whatever. It's some kind of stick of authority, which implies the beating of underlings. Yeah. And he like lays it on her shoulder next to her face while he's talking to her about you ran before you were given permission to retreat. It's an expression of tremendous power, power over her. Well, it's a threat. It's a pretty explicit threat of violence. And he smiles the whole time. He just like looks at her and gives her this creepy smile. There's a very explicit demonstration of clemency. Like, I forgive you for your failures. I hope you won't fail me again. This is like when Darth Vader chokes an officer to death and then promotes the guy standing next to him and says, I look forward to working with you. <laughs> But it is striking that even after everything Jared has been through, he does not seem to suspect Sirocco's manipulation. No. But Moar does. She is very alert to it. This is very telling about Jared and the deeply internalized trauma he has experienced because I love this scene. Sirocco asks him, why do you think it is that I didn't send out any reinforcements? And Jared provides this very reasonable, logical, military objectives-focused reasoning of, oh, you couldn't because it wasn't our mission and you needed to conserve your forces for Operation Apollo. His immediate tendency is to fixate on his own failures and absolve authority figures for theirs, completely, immediately and naturally. 
This is a guy who has experienced some serious trauma at a very early age. And Sirocco muses to himself. He says, oh, Jared isn't what I imagined based on what Jamaican told me. So the story that he heard was, oh, this cocky guy, always getting into trouble, totally useless. He probably heard every bad thing about Jared. And instead, he's received a somewhat reckless, but also uh, apparently quite conscientious, like he feels his responsibilities quite deeply, young officer. And Soroko almost doesn't know what to do with him. Right, like, oh, I I thought I was going to get cocky, reckless, stupid guy, and instead I have this. Hmm. So we're in a feeling out process. And that really feels like what Sirocco's agenda for Jared was in this episode. Send him out, see what he does, feel him out. Because you have to understand someone in order to be able to manipulate them. Yeah, so far, Jared's biggest weakness seems to be his desire to fight the Argama by himself. And the Argama really only as a proxy for the Mark II. Right. And the Mark II as a stand-in for Camille. Absolutely. He's very Char-like in his fixation on the enemy ace. Well, Sarah even says when the reinforcements first show up, oh, should I call such and such ship? And he's like, no. I have to do this myself or it won't count. I love his confrontation with Siddeley and Sarah, though. When he's first taken command of their unit? Yes. And Sarah says, I will not kill or something along those lines. He's like, excuse me? (laughs) What are you doing here? Um, then the enemy will kill you. She switches to, I won't kill if I don't have to, which is very different from I won't kill. And then she switches to, I'm not ready to die. And Jared's just, I can just see him like tearing his hair out, shaking with frustration, like, you kids have never been in a real battle and have no idea what you're talking about. I thought that was a really interesting scene because of the way Sarah's dialogue presents her as a kind of classic anime hero type. Mm-hmm. She's the special kid. She's got the new type powers. She views this struggle as a necessary evil in order right. to build a better world. And she's dedicated to this idea of not killing or killing as few people as possible. Like Those are all attributes that we associate with the classic anime mecha hero archetype. They were true of Amuro towards the end. They've been true of Camille. And here they are being assigned to Sarah, of all people. I know that I often harp on Tomino's tendency to use parallel story structures in his shows, but it's real strong in this episode. We're just jumping back and forth between parallel scenes. And this is an episode all about bringing in the next generation of young, inexperienced pilots. Fa on the one side and Sarah and Siddeley on the other. Did you notice the direct parallel that was made between Sarah and Camille? Uh, no. At one point during the fight, Fa is fighting Sarah. And Sarah says to herself, if you didn't come out, I wouldn't have to kill you. And how many times have we heard Camille say that? Wow. To enemies. I I can't believe I missed that. (laughs) If you hadn't come out on the battlefield, I wouldn't have to kill you. Which brings me to what I thought was my most interesting realization of the whole episode. Really amazing, mind-blowing stuff (laughs) over here. Fa and Camille get into a fight. The crux of which seems to be that Fa wants Camille to be more attentive, more affectionate. She wants boyfriend attention, not slightly negligent friend attention. And he's not providing that. And it's upsetting for her. 
they wind up in an argument where Camille essentially says some part of the world needs to be untouched by the war. Some part of the world needs to not be involved because that's the part that we want to continue afterwards. That war will destroy everything involved in it. Some part has to be kept safe and he hoped that Fa would be part of that. And Fa uh, <laughs> rebuts that he's being incredibly naive. And he is from her perspective because remember, he leaves the side pretty early. But Fa saw just how much staying out of it would not keep her from being touched by the war. You know, her home was probably destroyed. Camille's was. Uh, her parents were taken prisoner. You know, there is no staying out of it. Even if she doesn't fight, she's still going to be touched by it. And Camille's attitude and Sarah's attitude of, oh, if you didn't come onto the battlefield, I wouldn't have to kill you does feel naive. How many civilian homes were destroyed by mobile suits? How many people killed by, you know, war activities who were not in mobile suits, who were not on the battlefield per se, you know? Yeah. Oh, also, can we just pause for a moment to appreciate slash wince for the, the power of a good friend to say exactly the thing that will most hurt you? Because at the end of their argument, when Fa's walking away, because Bright and Emma have come to break it up, and Fa's like, oh, it's over. He's always nagging me. It's so unmanly. And I was like, ooh, you knew that would hurt him, and you said it anyway or because of that. Yup. He takes it well. Eh. He doesn't fixate on it. He doesn't strike back. He does follow after her and he does try to continue their little fight. Well, and very physically, which made me uncomfortable. He grabs her arm. She says, let me go. He grabs her shoulder again. He puts himself between her and her door. Like, that's very aggressive. And then it turns out he doesn't actually have anything to say to her because he's still obsessing over four. I think he probably had something to say. He just couldn't get it out. I think when he saw four in Fa, he got choked up and couldn't say it, whatever it was. And the reason I attribute Fa's irritation to her wanting more from him is because she has a line about she can tell his heart is still back on earth. Totally unrelated, but the upskirt shot of her felt so gratuitous. <laughs> Even so she's wearing almost the same outfit as Emma, the tunic, but at least Emma wears pants. <laughs> You're not wrong. Who goes around zero G in a skirt, I ask you? Since what's under the skirt is the same color as the skirt, I assume it's all sort of a one-piece garment and the skirt is just for show. It's really more like a... A leotard? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that felt silly to me. So do you think that Fa became a pilot because she was trying to get closer to Camille? Not really. It's possible. But you had floated the idea previously that... She may just have been doing what she's done since she got there, which is looking for ways to contribute and help. And what they needed was pilots. Kind of a long shot. Also possible, Quattro knew that it would push Camille's buttons if Fa became a pilot, and Quattro encouraged Fa to become a pilot. I mean, if she is a new type, I think we can be fairly confident that Quattro encouraged her to become a pilot. Yeah. I just thought that since you were pointing out that this whole fight seems to derive from Fa wanting more from Camille in terms of attention and energy and you know, affection, that maybe that was also motivating her decision to become a pilot and maybe motivating her decision to commit some Grand Theft mobile suit. Or she's just more like Camille than we realized. You know, she, she attributes it all to, to emotion, to impulse, and tries to use that as an excuse. And while I don't approve of Emma's 
corporal punishment reaction nope. to that. It's absolutely not a legitimate excuse. And Fa absolutely should be punished. Uh, Maybe they should put her in the discipline room. Oh, man. While we're talking about that, Reko and Camille off to the side say hello. They have a nice little reunion. They're pointedly not looking at Fa. Uh, I'm going to interpret that in a very nice way that they know that Fa would be deeply embarrassed if everyone was watching her be punished and cry. And so they're like politely looking away. Uh, but Reko says to Camille, you're going to miss being scolded like that. I don't think he is. But it's uh, it's an acknowledgement that what Fa is experiencing is the way that the mistakes of children are dealt with, not the way that the mistakes of adults are dealt with. That like Fa is, a, is the bottom of the totem pole with very few responsibilities and is being scolded. Mm -hmm. And the closer Camille gets to adulthood, the more responsibility he has, the more serious his mistakes will become. The Yeah, I think she's talking about becoming an adult, basically. I agree there's that aspect to it. She's also drawing a direct line between Camille's experiences as a new pilot and Fa's experiences. Mm -hmm. The way the military requires certain things from you and the way it punishes you if you don't offer them. That interaction between Emma and Fa is also a nice way of talking about how war dehumanizes you. Fa makes the completely correct point that humans are creatures who are governed by their emotions. And then Emma makes the also correct point that emotions will accomplish nothing in war and they need to be suppressed. I would argue that a huge part of growing up is learning not to be governed by your emotions. To feel them, to recognize them, but to not let them dictate all of your behavior in an impulsive way. Is, within the world of Gundam, war not the threshold that divides childhood from adulthood? No, because there are a bunch of children in it. They don't automatically become adults when they enter the war. But participation in the war forces them to become adults, or else kills them. I don't know that I agree. When Emma is chastising Fa, Bright shows up, and not only does he physically grab Emma's arm after the first time that she slaps Fa, he also tries to excuse Fa's behavior by claiming that he authorized her to sortie, which he didn't. Or if he did, it certainly wasn't in the Rick Diaz, because she asks about it, and they're like, oh, we're not close enough for the Nemos yet. Like, they're not surprised to see her there. They don't say, what are you doing? Get out of here. But she's certainly not supposed to be in the first wave or in one of the better mobile suits. She's supposed to be in a Nemo. And since she hasn't actually finished her simulator training, maybe she wasn't supposed to go out at all. Yeah, Bright does try to stop it. I think this actually ties really nicely with Bright and Emma's conversations about the Fa and Camille fights. Because Bright... When confronted with a battle, knows exactly what orders to give, knows what to do. When confronted with young dudes brawling on the bridge, <laughs> knows just what he wants to do. This is a lot more complicated, and he is clearly sort of uncomfortable here. He's not entirely sure how to treat Fa. And I don't know if that's because she's a young woman or because he knows she's been having these fights with Camille. And while he does think that their fighting is probably really bad for unit cohesion and going to affect them in negative ways when they fight, he doesn't know what to do about it. And he tries to cede responsibility to Emma. He tries to be like, Emma, can't you do something? I mean, Emma's in charge of the pilots on the Argama. This is her job. 
this is also Bright struggling now that he doesn't have the support that he had on the white base. Mm. There's no Mirai. There's no Ryu. He doesn't have a couple of people to depend on, really. Right. On the white base, he had Sela, and now he's got Emma. Yeah. And I don't know if we're supposed to think that Emma is a good commander, but she is not doing much to impress us at this point. Her attitude towards essentially all conflict is leave it be, which normally I would say is probably a good attitude. <laughs> Often trying to intervene in other people's arguments just makes them worse. But I don't think we have the luxury of letting stuff play out. It would have been bad for discipline to let the fight on the bridge just go just because they're young guys who need to blow off steam. And her implication that for Fa and Camille, the argument is recreation seems to be like, well, of course they're bored. We're cooped up on the ship with no fighting. Like, this is just going to happen until they're busy with other things. Um, it was also the one I thought like bad part of the episode where she starts to spell out like, oh, Camille is both sexually attracted to me and also <laughs> looks to me as a mother figure. And I'm going to give him a complex if I try to give him too much advice or help him too much. You think they said the quiet part loud and they shouldn't have? <laughs> it's never bothered her before. I also get the sense that Bright shoves burger in his mouth when he's trying to think of what to say. <laughs> I agree. He just needs some time. And she turns it around on Bright. You know, as the captain, you're kind of the dad of the whole ship. Raising the pilots is your responsibility. And he has a reaction that I assume is common for a lot of people who spend time around teenagers, which is, oh, he's already so big and he already looks so close to being an adult. And yet he is so troublesome. Just a giant angry baby. It's causing so many problems for me. <laughs> But Emma's complete abrogation of responsibility to do anything about the problems amongst her pilots is, it's not a good look, Emma. But I'm not certain what she could do. Like, if I were Emma, probably the only thing I could think to do would be to confront Camille and say, look, one minute you're hugging Fa close like you missed her terribly and never want to be parted from her. The next you're practically ignoring her. Like, figure out what you want and be clear, like actually communicate and express your feelings. But her telling him to do that is not going to enable him to do that. This reminds me of the Nina theory of advice. Right. You can tell people what to do, but that doesn't mean they can hear you. That doesn't mean they're capable of doing it. Like maybe on the fa side, just explaining like, well, he's a stupid teenage boy who doesn't know what he feels. You know, she could basically tell fa, move on. Yeah, even if she's not willing to talk to Camille because she's afraid of encouraging his mother complex, she could talk to Fa. Mm, she's already messed up that relationship because remember, Fa has disliked her from the beginning because Fa can tell Camille is attracted to her and Fa doesn't like any woman Camille is attracted to. Plus all the slapping, I don't... The slapping is new. I mean, before the slapping, she could have talked to Fa. Like, if Emma's going to be Fa's commanding officer, she can't allow that relationship to stay bad just because it started bad. Yeah, I just think Fa has demonstrated an, a total lack of interest or receptiveness to Emma's advice. Because they have a whole conversation in the hallway at one point, like, oh, were you and Camille fighting? Is that why you got lost on the ship? And Fa like, don't talk to me like I don't understand. The fact that Emma's course of action here is not clear and that the job she needs to do looks very difficult, maybe impossible, doesn't absolve her of the responsibility to try. I'm not saying she looks like a good commander. I'm just saying I don't know that there's a good course of action. I also don't like her. You know who else doesn't look like a good commander? 
I mean, basically anybody in this show, but Jared. Yeah. I think we're getting some Jared-Emma parallels here. As much as Jared might be the Camille rival, I don't think we're meant to be seeing him as running along the parallel track to Camille. No, definitely not. It's hard to imagine Camille being put in charge of anyone. How horrible to imagine. Right? Nobody would do that. (laughs) And Jared does a bad job, but I do think he takes his job seriously. Like the fact that he's been put in charge of this young people. His frustration in that whole conversation we talked about where they're like, we're not going to kill anybody is because he's worried that that attitude will get them killed. You know, he, he takes this all very seriously. When I'm talking about parallelism, I especially like to be able to point to instances where they do a direct cut from one scene to another scene that's set up to create a parallel between two characters or two events. In this episode, they do that a bunch of times. Nina already mentioned the one at the end where they go from the disciplining of Sarah to the disciplining of Fa. But much earlier in the episode, right after Emma has told Bright that he needs to be a father to the crew and resolve this dispute between Fa and Camille, they do an immediate cut to Jared staring right at the camera and saying, I cannot believe I have to babysit these children. (laughs) Indeed, Jared, we also cannot believe you have to babysit these children. In an episode that is very much about the responsibilities of commanders and how they interact with their troops, one of the biggest presences in this episode is actually the ones who aren't present, the faraway invisible higher-ups who sent Fa to the Argama and sent Siddeley and Sarah to Jared's squad. Because it seems like what they're doing with these groups of young potential new types is very similar. They're sort of sending half-trained young pilots out to the front lines to see what happens. And that feels almost genre-savvy. Like, after watching First Gundam, a reasonable viewer might conclude, given how effective Amuro was, that the most efficient way for a universal century faction to conduct itself is just to gather up as many teenagers as possible, throw them into the war, and see which ones turn into psychic super soldiers. As long as they were raised in space. So you had another way in which people use and abuse space noids. And young people. Adults use and abuse young people. We see Rekawa have some new type moments, which I can't remember if we had before, but... She'd had those moments of like long distance connection to Camille. And he gets a big one in this episode. He gets the battle premonition. Which I think is a response to Siddeley and Sarah showing up. Probably. Or to Sirocco. They also have a moment when Siddeley almost gets Rekua. There's a flash between the two of them uh, before the reinforcements show up and Siddeley has to retreat somewhat. And it seems like that flash might have actually startled Siddeley and might be the reason why Rekua was able to get away. It gave her that moment of respite. <laughs> yeah, that moment of uncertainty where Siddeley missed her opportunity to make the kill. Although part of that, I think, is also just Siddeley's lack of experience because she says something that she or he, I'm, I'm not positive, they're quite young, they're voiced by a woman, but it's not uncommon for young men to be voiced by women in anime. Uh, but Siddeley says something like, I got it or I did it. Like, like they know they have the killing shot, but they don't take it because mm-hmm. they're so startled by being in position. And then the flash and then, oh no, reinforcements. So let's talk for a second about Fa's performance out there. Speaking of new types and their new type moments, while we haven't gotten much of that for Fa, when she launches, Bright makes a comment about, oh, 
Am I just expected to like have faith in the new types? Is that why Fa was sent here? Suggesting that Ayug is doing the same things that the Titans are and just sending any potential new type candidates out into the field and waiting for an Amuro to emerge. And Fa's performance in the fight is not spectacular, but also not bad. I was going to say it felt like a bit of a letdown after her first fight where she performed quite admirably. But remember, while we've become accustomed to seeing Camille out there as an ace flying around, destroying enemy mobile suits right and left, it took five episodes at the beginning of the show before he got his first mobile suit kill. And Fa's performance in this fight, dogfighting, firing and missing, narrowly dodging, getting one of the legs of her Rictias blown off and Running expanding of- all of her ammunition. Yep. That's exactly like the way Camille fought in those first couple of episodes. And frankly, Camille was using a Mark II against Hyzax, which gave him a pretty big advantage that the Rick Diaz versus Marasai doesn't have. She's also at an emotional disadvantage. Right before the fight, she tries to apologize to Camille. She does this in kind of an offhand way and very publicly, so it's not like the best apology. But she doesn't want them to go into battle, like, fretting about the things that they said to each other. And he basically acts as if she did not apologize. He says, Roger, like, okay, I heard you. (laughs) He's already in battle mode. This is like what Emma said in the previous episode. He switches into being a different kind of person when he's in battle. Fa clearly still has their argument on her mind. I think she's probably additionally concerned now that she's attempted to make an overture of apology and it has been ignored or rebuffed. Like that just makes it worse. Uh, And that's how she goes into the fight. And she has a lot to prove. Simply put, very much like Camille at the beginning of the show. Did you notice the bit of slow motion in the fight when Jared almost gets Camille? It's like flash frames. It's really neat. It was a beautifully animated fight. The whole episode is pretty good, but the fight especially. Lots of very pretty uh, lens flare effect during this combat. Lots of light and shadow. And the um, sheen, the like noise and flash of light during the transformations mm-hmm. when the, the V-fins come up on the Zeta and the... <laughs> That's right. I don't know how we neglected to mention this. The Zeta Gundam appears in its mobile suit form for the very first time in this episode. It just doesn't feel like that remarkable of a mobile suit. Really? Just, oh, another primary colors and white <laughs> hero mobile suit. How exciting. Oh, It's a transforming one, but we've seen lots of cool transforming ones. And Mm, I that (laughs) surprises and disappoints me. I really like the Zeta and I think it's a very different design. Well, maybe I need to take a closer look at it. I find it very difficult in the episodes to actually get a sense of the mobile suits Mm -hmm. because they're moving so much. That's absolutely true. And they don't do the thing that happens so often in First Gundam where you just get like a long shot of someone posing or some Mm -hmm. mobile suit posing. It just did not strike me in the same way that the Gaplant or the Gabflay did. I suppose when I say that it's unique and different, I'm comparing it to other Gundam types. Mm. To the RX-78-2 from First Gundam, to the Mark II, and of course to all the ones that you haven't seen yet. But I do like when they do sheen in the transformation, (laughs) and then the eyes flash always. I love that there are tropes in the transformation sequence. There are things you do that have just become part of the way that you animate any mecha show, the visual language of mecha shows. 
Speaking of the language of mecha shows, did you catch the term that Bright uses for mechanics? No. At the end of the episode, when he says that Rekoa should apologize to the mechanics for getting the methos damaged, the word he uses is mechaman tachi. I love it. Tachi just indicates that it's plural. Mm -hmm. So the term for mechanic is mechaman. Love it. Also, uh, <laughs> when... Emma is like, oh, the fighting is just a recreation for them. She uses the English word recreation. Recreation this. Well, she also says maza complex. Maza complex. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. One final note on Emma. I really love seeing her uncomfortable when yes. Rekoa shows up with a gift from Heckener. <laughs> it's really funny to see Emma having just been so in control of the situation, so domineering and so like, you have to ignore your emotions. There's no room for them in war. You have to be in control of yourself. And then she gets the package from Heckener and she's like, what am I supposed to do with this? Captain Bright, help. He's like, it's not my present. You should probably open it. And Reko is like, oh, well, I gave it to you, which is what I said I would do. Bye. Bye. <laughs> uh, well, the, the word she uses to describe her feeling on receiving this gift is uh, komaru, uh, which means like to be in trouble, to be bothered. Like, oh, this, <laughs> this is troublesome. This is, this is a pickle. <laughs> Uh-oh. He's not her direct superior anymore. She's also had some inkling that he had feelings for her for some time. She was perhaps hoping that absence would make those feelings go away. You know, they've been apart for a few weeks now, probably, maybe more than a month, maybe more than two. I don't know about the passage of time in this show. Uh, but he clearly has not forgotten his feelings at all. And he, you know, despite his embarrassment, and he's clearly quite embarrassed, he does ask Rekua. He's like, could you give this to her for me? Uh, which takes some guts. Yeah. Rekawa's return bearing the gift really drives home how few of the original Argama crew members are on board now. Mm -hmm. Rekawa's back. Astanaji has been there the whole time, we assume, as has his crew. You know, all the low-ranking people. Apple just got back. Blex is gone. Quattro's gone. Rekawa was gone. And Heckner... In case anybody missed it, we're talking about Henken Beckener, which I like to shorten to Heckener. Well, Emma, maybe follow some of your own non-advice. Just engage in some recreation. <laughs> I don't think she's into him at all. Every time they interacted, he looked so like happy and uncomfortable and embarrassed. And she was just kind of like, yes, sir. <laughs> Emotionless face. This week, we research and discuss Soroko's implement and corporal punishment in Zeta and the history of vending machines. Zeta Gundam is infamous for the sheer amount of interpersonal violence that's on display. From the backhanded slap Camille receives from his karate club captain just one minute and 40 seconds after the opening titles in the very first episode, up until now... Violence, in the form of kicks, slaps, and punches, or the threat of them, has been an ugly bruise marking and distorting practically every relationship in the show. And this stands in stark contrast to First Gundam, where violence of this kind was rare, and when it did occur, 
shocking both to the audience and to the characters. In First Gundam, those moments of violence served to show us the desperation of the situation. They were the clearest examples that, for the young civilian crew of the White Base, the war had brought the everyday functioning of the world to a stop. It had broken all of the systems governing their ordinary lives and forced them to become different kinds of people living in a different kind of world. The violence in Zeta Gundam is routine. It is the violence inherent in a system that is working as intended. It's violence that principally serves the interests of the powerful and perpetuates the hierarchy of power. To suppress dissent, to enforce discipline, where discipline is synonymous with obedience, and to punish rebellion. This is built into Zeta and its world at every layer, from the very purpose of the Titans to the massacre they carried out on Colony 30, to the beating they gave Captain Bright when he criticized Basque. It's there every time Emma slaps Camille or Fa. It's there during Wong Lee's protracted beating of Camille, the one that starts because he's late, but escalates in brutal fashion because Camille proves unable, or unwilling, to appease Wong Lee with a display of subservience. It is routinely the stronger or the older or the higher-ranking person punching down, so to speak, and on the rare occasions when the weaker party strikes a blow against the stronger, think about Camille punching Jared or kicking the military police officer Matosh, punishment is swift, painful, and disproportionate. This violence appears twice in the episode we just watched, The Eyes of Sirocco. On the Argama, when Emma slaps Fa twice, and on the Dogos Gear, when Sirocco shows up to debrief Sarah and Jared carrying a riding crop. Although the threat of this violence so permeates all the character dynamics of the show that it's hard to say if it's ever truly absent. The first time Emma slaps Fa, it is as a punishment for taking the Rictias out without permission and putting herself, the equipment, and the whole squad in danger. Though I don't like to see it, I can at least understand it in this context. They are in a desperate situation, and it is essential that Fa learn, sooner rather than later, what Camille has learned about the importance of obeying orders and the limits of her own ability to understand the necessities of the battle. But the second slap is different. It's harder, for one, hard enough to leave an immediate mark, and it's filmed in a way that emphasizes the power of the blow. The camera lingers on Emma's face, her jaw clenched, her brow furrowed in anger. This happens even after Bright has arrived, seemingly intent on stopping Emma from striking Fa again. So the provocation that triggered the second slap? We know it must really have been something truly egregious. But all that she's done is try to justify herself, to explain that it's natural for a person to be driven by their emotions. When Emma hits her, the lieutenant also snaps that transient emotions are useless in war. And so they might be, but there's also a certain irony in Emma saying that, while in thrall to her own momentary anger. This has the form of a conversation, but the violence is the end of the conversation. It doesn't matter what Emma is saying. It doesn't matter whether she's right or not, consistent with her own rhetoric or not. None of that matters. When she hits Fa for speaking up, she has declared herself beyond challenge, beyond criticism, and immune to reason. And from this point forward, the threat of further violence will always linger between them, unspoken, but always there. The next time Fa thinks of challenging Emma, no matter how necessary it might be, no matter how right she might be, she'll hesitate. Over on the Titans' side of the show, Sirocco 
doesn't hit anyone, but he carries the threat of corporal punishment with him when he meets with Jared and Sarah, represented for the audience and for his subordinates by the implement he brought with him. I'm not going to expend too much time trying to puzzle out whether we should be calling it a baton, a rod, a cudgel, a switch, a whip, a shambuk, a swagger stick, a riding crop, a kanamuchi, or so on. For the most part, the differences between all of these are unimportant. They are all impact weapons designed for corporal punishment and wielded as a symbol of authority by officers in armies stretching back, at least to the Romans, but probably before, and still common today. The Romans issued wites, vine-gnarled wooden staves, to centurions, the non-commissioned officers who formed the backbone of their professional army, from at least as early as the 2nd century BCE. A witis was no mere cudgel, but an icon of the centurion's lawful authority to discipline the troops under his command. A soldier who broke a witis could be executed for it. In the Roman mind, to be beaten or whipped was a source of incredible shame, and there were ancient laws that exempted Roman citizens, including citizen soldiers, from such degrading punishments. But a blow from the wites carried none of this stigma. The Roman historian Pliny wrote that the use of the wites made even chastisement honorable. The modern descendant of the wites, a thin and often ornamented cane called a swagger stick, was omnipresent in colonial and early modern armies, but fell out of favor around the time of World War II. They survive today in some units, in some places, and their role is much the same as their ancient counterparts. They are icons of and tools for authority and discipline. That's all true for these weapons in general. But the specific Japanese context is a little bit different. And it's important. In Japanese schools, corporal punishment, or taibatsu, has been illegal since the 1940s, but it is still widespread, frequently denounced and also widely tolerated. Student deaths linked to corporal punishment are horrifying, but never particularly rare. In the early 1980s, Japan was fascinated and horrified by a high-profile case revolving around the Totsuka Yacht School, a kind of sports-based reform school for problem children, founded and led by Olympic yachtsman Totsuka Hiroshi. The students at the Totsuka Yacht School were dropouts, habitual truants and shut-ins. At school, Totsuka and the coaches working under him inflicted strict, violent discipline on their students. Soon, students began to go missing or die by suicide. In 1982, a group of teachers beat a 13-year-old boy until he died. In all, five students died between 1979 and 1982. Totsuka and several of his underlings were charged and convicted, but the trials, which went all the way to Japan's Supreme Court, took 19 years to reach a final verdict. All the while, Totsuka protested that he had merely been using strict and loving discipline in order to heal the children. In 2003, the criminals were jailed for a three-year prison term. And when he was released in 2006, Totsuka announced that corporal punishment is education, and he reopened his school. A student died by suicide at the reopened Totsuka Yacht School that year. Another followed in 2009 and a third in 2012. The main lesson that Totsuka seems to have learned from all of this is that when it comes to punishing students, it is better for him if he simply lets the older students beat the younger ones. According to my source, no one in Japan has ever been convicted for failing to stop violence among students. 
This seems to have largely been the method practiced in the Japanese military before and during World War II. Foreign observers evaluating the Japanese army marveled at how rarely officers were obliged to discipline their soldiers. Indeed, the numbers of courts martial convened for Japanese soldiers were remarkably low for the era, and less than two in every thousand soldiers were ever actually convicted in courts martial. This naturally led to a lot of extremely racist theorizing about the nature of the Japanese soldier and his relationship to discipline, but the real truth of it seems to be this. Senior enlisted soldiers were given free reign to punish the junior soldiers in their units, informally and outside of the regular system of military justice. To quote from the book In the Service of the Emperor, Essays on the Imperial Japanese Army, quote, The senior soldiers looked for pretexts to inflict violence on the new soldiers in the name of instilling self-discipline into the newcomers. The emphasis was on discipline and obedience, and for the lowest-ranking soldiers, this meant constant abuse and beatings. When a soldier was being beaten, it was customary to explain the reasons for the punishment while the beating was taking place. And just think about Zeta as I'm describing this. You would also ask the soldier why they had failed to behave properly. But actually answering those questions would just get you beaten more, as would remaining silent. Quoting again, Most recruits soon learned the best thing to say was yes, yes, and to accept a few slaps in the face. In the evenings, after inspections but before lights out, the non-commissioned officers would withdraw, and they would leave the barracks in the hands of the corporals and senior privates. This was called the Time of the Devils, and it was then that the senior soldiers would convene unofficial off-the-books tribunals and mete out private internal punishments for whatever minor infractions had occurred during the day. All of this was done with plausible deniability, because hazing of this kind was theoretically prohibited in the army. Slaps to the face, called binta, were routine, but restrained to avoid injuring the soldier badly enough to attract official attention. That was not the case in the Imperial Japanese Navy, where hazing and disciplinary beatings were openly tolerated. There, it was common for soldiers to be beaten with thick mooring ropes or even lengths of handrail, but the iconic weapon of naval discipline was the Gunjin Seishin Chunyu Bo, the military spirit installation rod, a euphemism for what was essentially a hardwood club, only a little bit different from a baseball bat, that was used to inflict painful and occasionally lethal beatings on young sailors and marines. These beatings did what hazing always does. They created a hierarchy of absolute obedience between the junior soldiers and their seniors. They created a rigid dividing line between an in-group who had endured the hazing and become members of the unit, and an out-group, everybody else. And they taught the young soldiers that their bodies were not their own, but subject to the vicious whims of their fellows. When Sirocco lays his crop alongside Sarah's face, that simple action carries with it the weight of the centuries and the threat of everything I have just been describing. He could beat her if he wanted. The crop signifies that he possesses the power and the authority to do so. But he chooses not to. Is he not merciful? Mere obedience, as an Emma or a Jared might demand, simply doesn't satisfy him. Sirocco wants Sarah's gratitude. He wants to be revered. 
Vending machines have been part of the scenery in First Gundam and in Zeta. We see characters in the break room of the Argama pick up sodas and snacks, and in this episode we even see Bright buy and eat a vending machine hamburger. Nowadays, Japan is famous for its vending machines, their quality, their ubiquity, and frequently their, to our minds, unconventional contents. So when was the first vending machine created? What were the big developments in vending machine technology? And what makes vending machines in Japan so special? Dear listeners, it is time to dive into the history of vending machines. The first patent for a vending device is from 1857 in Britain, and it was a machine for dispensing stamps. But a couple of my sources put the true origin of the vending machine much farther back, in the first century to be precise. Heron Alexandrinus was a mathematician and engineer, and is credited with inventing an early steam engine, a wind-powered machine, and a syringe. He also invented a holy water dispenser as a solution to the problem of people taking too much holy water when they visited the (laughs) temple. A worshiper put a token into the machine. The weight of the token would push a lever, which opened a sluice and allowed water to flow out. But after a few moments, the token would fall, and with nothing pushing on the lever, the sluice would close, stopping the flow of water. The first U.S. patent for a vending machine was issued in 1884, though this design was never mass-produced. In 1888, vending machines for Tutti Frutti brand gum were installed in numerous New York train stations, and this was when vending machines in the United States really started to appear in more public spaces. The vending machines of the late 1800s mostly sold things like cigarettes, peanuts, and small trinkets, usually for a penny. But before long, this had expanded significantly, and the first automat opened in Germany in 1895. An automat is a restaurant where all of the food is served from vending machines. Imagine a glass-fronted cabinet full of shelves, and on each shelf is a slice of pie or a burger or whatever. Kitchen staff prepare the food and put it into the machine, but customers pay and retrieve their food without ever interacting with a server. The first American automat opened in 1902. Most American automats only took nickels and were popular fast food establishments. Automats were already fading out by the 1970s due to competition from other fast food chains and inflation that drove up food prices. I have definitely seen some of these. You can still find them in a couple of places, usually incorporated into regular restaurants. Often diners that have been around will still have an automat, mostly as an item of curiosity. Yeah, I feel like I probably first saw an automat in an old movie. But there are definitely some still around, and I found one source that there are actually burger dispensing automats in, I want to say, the Netherlands. Hmm. The first beverage vending machine dates from 1890, was located in Paris, and contained beer, wine, and liquor. It wasn't until the 1930s that the first cold drink dispensing vending machines were introduced, and these used regular deliveries of ice to keep the drinks cold. But by just before World War II, electric vending machines that kept drinks cool were also common. Paper cup soda machines were also popular in the 1930s. These worked a lot like the soda dispensers we see at fast food restaurants. Syrups mixed with soda water in the machine and then dispensed into a disposable cup. Early vending machines also tended to sell one thing. You know, just gumballs. One kind of soda. The creation of machines with options and a mechanism for choosing between different products didn't take off until the 20s or 30s. 
Coffee was a particular challenge for vending machine creators. I would say it still is. <laughs> it's drinkable, but it's not good. An early version in the late 1940s mixed liquid coffee concentrate with hot water, but this coffee was not considered especially palatable. Later machines used individual pods of ground coffee for each cup dispensed, which sounds a lot like Nespresso or Keurig machines. When did the pod machines start appearing? I want to say the 60s, but I don't remember precisely. That is earlier than I would have thought, but also feels very 60s. Vending machines for hot food would typically involve some sort of built-in microwave to heat the food before dispensing it. Many of the technological developments in vending machines had nothing to do with what they dispensed or how, but had to do with the money they could take and how to make sure it wasn't fake or fraudulent. Different systems have involved everything from magnets, which could be set up in such a way that only coins with the correct composition would go through the machine, or later could be set up to detect the special ink used in treasury bills, uh, to digital cameras, which look for specific small details and visual markers on legitimate bills. As in the United States, 1888 also seems to be the date of the first vending machine in Japan, created by a furniture maker and inventor to dispense tobacco. Right around the same time, he also created a clockwork vending machine to dispense stamps and cards. The boom in vending machine popularity began in the 1950s and continued through the 1980s. The first really popular vending machine was one that dispensed a cup of juice for 10 yen, much like the soda fountain machines I mentioned earlier and a likely influence for our juice dispensing robot in First Gundam. The number of vending machines increased from 240,000 in 1964 to 5 million in 1984. Japan has the most vending machines per capita of any country in the world, with one machine for every 25 people. Why are vending machines so popular in Japan? Part of it is that they are in more different locations than they are in other places especially outdoors, near bus stops, near train stations, on hiking trails. The limiting factor in Japan on where to put them is, can you get electricity to it? It's a country with less vandalism and less petty crime, and so having them in remote places or you know far from a business is less of a concern. In the 1960s, Japan took the 100 yen coins that had been cast in silver previously and recast them in nickel. They also increased the number of 100 yen coins in circulation. And if people have a lot of coins on them, it makes it easier to make a purchase at a vending machine. Yeah, Japan uses coins for all of their denominations below 1,000 yen. The exchange rate fluctuates, but 1,000 yen is about $10. So imagine in the United States, if instead of dollar bills, $2 bills, $5 bills, all of those were coins. Yes, there really are $2 bills. Don't at us. They're lucky, or at least that's what I always heard growing up. <laughs> a Japanese beverage company also invented canned coffee and vending machines that could vend both hot and cold drinks from the same machine, and they would often change their settings based on the season. So they would vend only cold drinks in spring and summer, and then warm and cold drinks in fall and winter. One of my sources contends that the popularity of vending machines in Japan is at least partially due to the Japanese fondness for robots. After all, what is a vending machine but a robot helper that gives you snacks? Juice or soft serve? 
They also allow someone to bypass the social interactions and etiquette involved in buying something in a shop, where you may feel awkward only buying a drink or some gum, and where you will have to stop and make small talk with the shopkeeper. This goes double when the purchase itself might be embarrassing. An obvious example is something like condoms, which are in a lot of vending machines in Japan. But one of my sources mentioned machines that vended bouquets of flowers in the 1990s. At the time, buying flowers for someone you were seeing romantically was kind of unusual, and it might be embarrassing to explain who you were buying the flowers for and why. As a funny personal anecdote, there were a handful of words and phrases when I got back from studying abroad in Japan that were firmly locked in Japanese in my mind. After a year in Kyoto and living with a host family, there were certain words that I had never used all that much in English, and so the default word in my brain was the Japanese word. And I once was having a conversation with someone where I spent minutes trying to remember the English word for jidohanbaiki, which is vending machine. Like, you know, the, the thing, the the machine, the <laughs> jidohanbaiki. <laughs> Uh, and now there are vending machines that can make a pizza, dispense cupcakes, customize Oreo cookies, or even sell luxury cars. Yep, there is a vending machine in Singapore where you can buy a luxury car. Of course it's in Singapore. In Japan of the 1980s, vending machines would have been pretty ubiquitous. And not just those dispensing drinks and cigarettes, but also small snacks and sandwiches. Of course the break room in a large spaceship would have them. And I checked, there are, in fact, vending machines that sell burgers, though I can't say for sure if there were any back in the 80s. Before we go this week, I have an update on last week's research. Last week, in episode 2.22, Signed in Blood, I pointed out that the shuttle Fa is piloting has the words... Saint Miki Yasasi, written on the front. I recounted the story of Saint Miki, the Japanese-born Jesuit initiate who was martyred after he was mistakenly caught up in Toyotomi Hideyoshi's purge of recently arrived Franciscan missionaries, but at the time, I didn't have an answer for the Yasasi part. I pointed out its similarity to the Japanese word Yasashi, an adjective that means kind, gentle, tender, and so on, but it didn't quite line up. I felt like I was missing a piece of the puzzle. So I was forced to put it aside. But thankfully, listener and patron Rose got in touch after the episode aired to deliver the missing piece and solve the puzzle for me. When Japanese words are written in the Latin alphabet for consumption by an English-speaking audience, the system used is called Hepburn Romanization, or Hebon Shiki Romaji in Japanese. It's based on the way the Latin letters are pronounced in English, which makes it best suited for English speakers encountering Japanese words. But Hepburn romanization is not the only way of romanizing Japanese words. There is a competing system called Nihonshiki, or Japanese-style romanization. Where Hepburn style was invented by an American missionary in 1886, Nihonshiki was invented by a Japanese physicist in 1885 and he intended it to replace the use of kanji and kana altogether. His system was designed to be regular, logical, and easy for Japanese speakers to use. It was adopted in a modified and updated format by the Imperial Japanese government as Kunrei Shiki in 1937. 
After the war, the U.S. occupation forces ordered the Japanese government to use Hepburn style for all official purposes. But then the post-occupation Japanese government reinstated Kunrei Shiki, and since then, the two styles have endured an uneasy coexistence. Young people in Japan today still learn both systems. Starting in elementary school, students learn Nihon Shiki in third grade, and then learn Hepburn romanization in fifth grade. It's very common to see words written in Nihon Shiki. So how do you write Yasashi in Nihon Shiki? You would write it Y-A-S-A-S-I, exactly like it's written on the front of Fa's shuttle. Kind Saint Miki. Next time on episode 2.24 in Armstrong's Footsteps, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 23 and cleaning even in the corners. Camille has a crush on every girl. All according to Soroko's Keikaku. Plots within plots. Camille notices feminism and he doesn't approve. Fa gets a taste for killing titans. Next level hostage taking. Hashtag not all Camilles. Unexpected sympathy for the Jared. And the battlefield belongs to new types. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, There is one and only one way to correctly pronounce a Gundam character's English name on any busy street corner. We will totally hear you. The theme song for the Little Loyalist Reading Hour is a parody of the Reading Rainbow theme song circa 2001. The original was composed by Steve Horlick, Dennis Neil Kleinman, and Janet Weir. The parody lyrics were written by Mobile Suit Breakdown and Sean DMR, and performed by Sean DMR. A limited selection from the original composition is used in the parody, in accordance with the provisions for fair use under U.S. copyright law. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Okay, I was wrong, and that really f***ed up what I have to say, <laughs> so we're backtracking. Okay. And that made me wonder if that Japanese army thing goes back to like Neo-Confucian texts, like the soldier's rescript and stuff Which like we, that. Which we have English translation of. Mm -hmm. Thanks, people who bought us books. I'm sure we have copies of the Imperial rescript. Mm-hmm on Soldiers and Sailors, which is from the teens? When you wrote a paper on that at one point, didn't I you? I did. I don't know if I still have it. <laughs>
Um, so I think that philosophy could be something to look into. that Siddeley is a woman? I really couldn't tell in the episode. I think Siddeley is supposed to be a woman. That uh, gender ambiguity has been, is definitely there and has been noted by some people. Okay. Though it's not like a big focus because Siddeley lasts an episode. Um, Like poor Shalia Bull. Yeah. But yeah, Siddeley might be non-binary or trans or a somewhat effeminate looking man or a somewhat masculine looking woman. Yep. Unclear. I liked them though. I liked their character design and I'm disappointed Mm -hmm. they're gone. Me too. They had freckles. I like freckles. Not a lot of freckles on these anime characters. And by not a lot, I mean this was the first time we'd ever seen any. (laughs) Yeah. In two whole shows. Well, show and a half. Did Miharu have freckles? She should have. I don't remember if she did. I don't remember either. And I was like, I'm not saying she shouldn't be wearing pants. Maybe she doesn't like them. Fa tells him, it's Camille, I have to help. And he says, well, but what if we all die? She responds, that won't be our problem, will it? <laughs> I'm not arguing that. Obviously, war is going to up people's childhoods. <laughs> I think we should refer to all Gundam characters by one identifying trait and their hairstyle. No sleeves mullet. Angry mop. Mars high in the sky. <laughs> I can go twice as high. Take a gander. It's our propaganda. It's a little loyalist reading hour. A few too many syllables in that last line. <laughs> I know. It actually kind of works better if it like... Is bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When you started, when you picked the weapon research topic, I didn't realize it was going to be very like corporal punishment y. Neither so did I. I. Didn't this is where it went. <laughs> this is where the research took me. Good stuff. Yay, we did it. We did it. Wrong kind of opinion. I don't have one. Okay. <laughs> oh, no.